0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story. It's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. So the author, uh, Tolkien, he once wrote a short story about a painter. And this painter in the story, he's a skilled painter. I mean, he's a good at his craft, right, he he knows what he's doing, and one day this painter, he gets an idea, a vision for something that he wants to paint, and it kind of rests in his mind's eye, and it begins with just a single leaf. Just a single, solitary, but intricate, beautiful leaf, and he can imagine the contour of the lines that he wants to paint, and he can imagine the veins in the leaf and the exact shading of green that he wants to paint on the canvas. And that bursts a sort of spark of imagination for a thousand other leaves, like it all connected together, twig by twig and branch by branch, all sprawling arms out over this single, large, enormously round trunk. And this tree that he imagines is standing out in the middle of an open grassland, and out in the distance, there's a line of a forest, evergreens propping up from the grassland, and beyond those. There's these tall mountains springing up from behind the trees and there's snow on the the peaks of all the mountains and a skyline above that lights up the whole thing and he can just picture this in his mind. And so he sets about the work of painting this and he's captivated by this imagination and so he sets out with the intensity that this is going to be his life's work. Like this is going to be his his masterpiece. He's going to give himself fully to this. He's going to dedicate himself to this work of art. It's going to be his masterpiece. But it doesn't take him long in setting out to do this painting until he encounters the frustrations and distractions and things that go along with work. right? And so he he sets out to do this, but he realizes that he still has to maintain the day-to-day stuff of life. He has to do chores and clean the house and eat and sleep. And not only that, but sometimes he's not quite sure of how he's supposed to go about his work. Exactly what kind of brush does he need to use to get the contour of the lines, and how does he need to mix the colors to get that shade of green that he wants? And so he stops and starts, and he pauses, and then he gets to work again. And not only that, but the sheer size and scope of the project, his life's work, weighs on him and slows him down. See, he doesn't want just a small painting. Think bigger than what you see on the stage here. He wants something enormous, so big, in fact, that he has to have a ladder propped up against the canvas, and he has to climb the top of that ladder just to reach the top half of this canvas. It's a big painting that he wants to turn into reality. And not only that, But another thing that tends to frustrate him and slow him down in his work is people. And maybe you can relate to this a little bit. But he has this neighbor. And this neighbor, more than anyone else, seems to frequently knock at his door and ask him for things. He seems to always have a project that needs doing, some help that only the painter is able to provide. And so he constantly, in the moments of inspiration and energy and passion, he has to put down the brush and go and answer the door and have a conversation with his neighbor, help him out. And so it's stopping and starting. And not only that, but even there's messiness involved. He gets up on the ladder and his knee bumps a painting, or the the paint over, and so it spills onto the ground and he has to clean up a mess that he's made. And he experiences. The mundane and the boring and the tiring and the frustration of work, even though it's his life's work and it's his passion. And as he ages, months go by, years go by, and he gets older and he's still working on this painting and he comes to realize that his time on earth is short. And one day it does indeed happen that death comes and death knocks at his front door and the painter goes to the door to see who it is, and he opens it up, and he greets death. And death tells the painter that his time is up, and he has to go and leave this life and journey into the next life for what lies in store there. And the painter is cut, and he just cries out in anguish, it's unfinished, unfinished. That's all he can say, but he does go with death as he must, And some time passes by, and somebody else comes to purchase the home that he had been painting in. And this new resident moves in, and they uncover the painting in the middle of the study where he'd been working on it. And they find this canvas, but they don't find a beautiful landscape painting filled out to all the corners and edges of the painting. In fact, most of it's just still blank canvas. What they do find is just a single solitary but beautiful leaf. Something that clearly a person of skill and passion had worked on but hadn't quite gotten very far. And so they estimate in their mind that it might be of some value perhaps, a modest appraisal and they give it to a local art gallery. And this art gallery, this museum, they don't really know what to do with this unfinished painting and so they put it in a corner much too small to actually house this canvas where not many people will go by and look at it. And not only that, but because it hadn't been named yet, they name it according to what they see on the canvas. And so this masterpiece landscape landscape of a, a skilled painter is given just the name Leaf. Now I tell you that story because most of us will devote our lives to some vocation, some calling, some life's work, something that we're engaged in, that we're giving ourselves fully towards, that we're devoting ourselves and expending our energy and trying to turn our ambition and our imagination into reality. We want to establish the work of our hands. We want something to come and be fruitful from what we're engaging in in life. And yet we experience, like the painter, that in our lives, maybe we're only able to accomplish a leaf or two of our grand vision. We experience in the day-to-day, the mundane, we experience mediocrity, frustration in work. Maybe you go into law, and as a lawyer, you have this ambition, this imagination, that you're gonna set out to change the world and you're gonna bring about a just society where there's, there's right practice and there's good laws that help and benefit people, especially the broken and the vulnerable. And you wanna see equity and fairness and people experience flourishing. But like all of us, maybe after some time down the road, you encounter the annoying people who keep coming and knocking on your door in your office. Or maybe you experience a whole lot of paperwork that feels like mediocrity. And maybe you encounter conflict with other people, your bosses and your peers. And maybe you go home and the work doesn't seem to end and you go tired of this work. And even your life's calling or even the thing you're passionate about or what you're trying to give yourself towards is frustrated. Maybe even futile. That's something of what the painter experiences and I think it's something of what we experience too and so maybe you wonder, is my life really all that significant? Is what I'm giving myself wholly towards really something of substance that will last, that matters, that means something or am I just laboring in vain? So in the middle of that question, I think it would be good for us to proclaim some good news together this morning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, some good news that I want us to say out loud together. It's printed on your notes. So if you would, would you read aloud these words together with me, the good news that Paul proclaims? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This morning, we, the church, we stand in the reality that in Christ, our labor is not in vain, that God is at work in the world, in our lives, uniting our story with his story, rejoining the two and giving meaning and substance to our life's work to our calling, to our passion, to our dreams, to the things that we're devoting and giving ourselves to. And so because that's true and our labor is not in vain, God is issuing us a call. Put your hands to the plow. Cultivate. Join his work. Partake in his story. That's what we've been talking about for the past 12 weeks in this series. We've gone from Genesis, we've walked all the way through Revelation. And we've looked at God's story in the world, what God's been up to, the work that God's been doing, moving throughout history. And yet we've also said all along, this isn't just God's story, it's our story. It's the human story. It's my story and it's your story. And so because it's God's and our story, it's a story about vocation. So maybe uh, here this morning, you're just wondering right off the bat, like, what even is vocation? So what I want to do this morning is, is talk about what vocation is and what that means for God's calling on our lives. A guy named Stephen Garber has um, spent a lot of his career talking about vocation. I find his description of vocation really helpful and enlightening. This is what he has to say. The word vocation is a rich one, having to address the wholeness of life the range of relationships and responsibilities. Work, yes, but also families and neighbors and citizenship locally and globally. All of this and more is seen as vocation, that to which I am called as a human being, living my life before the face of God. It is never the same word as occupation, just as calling is never the same word as career. Sometimes by grace, the words and the realities they represent do overlap even significantly. Sometimes in the incompleteness of life in a fallen world, there is not much overlap at all. So I want to summarize this for you, and if you're following your notes, I've said it this way, that vocation means calling. It means calling, but it also means a host of other things, work and purpose, mission, responsibility, Everything that we put our hands to in life, that we devote and give ourselves to as, as our work and our labor, and it comes from a call that God's given to us. So I want us to look back at that first call that God gives in Genesis chapter 1. So if you allow it, I want to revisit the very beginning of the story as we conclude looking through the whole narrative. So open a Bible, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And we'll spend a few minutes there briefly. Uh, if you're using the black Bible that's under the seat, you should be, easy, should be easy to find it. It's on page one. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love for you to take that home with you so that you could have a copy of the scriptures uh, for use in your own home. That's a gift from us to you. So Genesis chapter one, God's been going about his work of creation, day one, two, three, four, five. And this culminates Genesis 1, 26 through 28 on day six. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And Genesis 2.15 is kind of a reflection on this same moment. In Genesis 2.15, it says that God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it, to cultivate it and to look after it. And these verses in the opening passage of Genesis, this is the beginning of the human story right? This is the beginning of what it means to be human. It's the birthplace of vocation. And there's a lot of really profound things that are happening in this text that I want us to look at. But before we get to the really profound stuff, let's notice the simple. Adam is essentially tasked with being a farmer. He's called into like literal agricultural work, like put your hands in the soil. And so there's a painting that's been done this week by Angie Holiday that I think like, perfectly visualizes this that I want you to look at. It's going to be on the screen for you so we can all see this. And this painting just gives us an image of what vocation looks like from a human vantage point. I mean, this is vocation on the ground, where it actually happens. There's some profound things happening in vocation, but at the heart of it, at the root of it, what you and I will experience is putting our boots on and getting our gloves on, and probably digging a little bit in the dirt, and having to do some hard work, it will feel sometimes not always fun. It will feel sometimes particularly frustrating, particularly complex, but this is what God has given us to do. Now, I don't know a lot about farming, but I know that it's tough, and I'm sure that most of the jobs that you all have And even if you're retired or you're not working right now, you have a life's work, something that you're engaged in in the day-to-day, and it may feel a lot like this. And it's important for us to notice this simple truth, that if we look for vocation only in what's exciting and passionate, where we feel particularly gifted and called, we will miss 90% of what vocation is in life. Vocation is often found and missed in the mundane, and in the ordinary, and in the day-to-day not in the fireworks and the spectacular moments of life. So I love Andy's painting for that reason. And yet there are some really profound things going on in this text that I want us to begin to notice. The first thing that I notice is that God isn't just planting a garden. He's he's building a temple. The whole cosmos, all the universe, the creation, earth itself is God's temple. And Eden is like the Holy of Holies. I mean, this is the place where God is himself going to dwell. His presence is going to be manifest in this garden. And like all temples of the ancient world, it needs an icon. It needs a figure that will represent the God who owns that temple. And so God, Yahweh, the living God, he doesn't want just some idol of stone or wood or silver or gold. Instead, he fashions for himself man. And he makes this man a living being. He breathes his own breath, the spirit of God into him to animate this body, turn flesh into a spiritual being. And that's how Adam comes to be the one who manifests and represents the presence of God as God's image in the world. And not only that, but Adam is given a couple of things. He's given responsibility. There's some work to do, And he's given authority, the power, the commissioning to go and to get it done. Responsibility and authority. In your notes, I've put it this way, that God has called each of us to live his kingdom story by giving us the responsibility and authority of bearing his image on the earth. That's originally what Adam is tasked with doing, and Eve likewise. Adam's told essentially, put your hand to the plow. There's a call that's given. Adam is functioning in this text like a priest king. And that's kind of a strange phrase to us. We like to separate church and state. But in that culture, it made all the sense in the world that you would have somebody who would mediate God's presence to earth. And that this somebody, this priest king, would have spiritual, that's the priest part of the word, and cultural work to do. That's the king part of the word. And that this spiritual and this cultural work would overlap And then as he works with his hands and he digs in the soil, there's something of spiritual weight and significance that's happening in his life's work. God has imbued that, that labor, with substance and with meaning, something that will last and be fruitful and multiply. And so we ask Adam essentially to extend the boundaries of Eden, push back the hedges on this garden, and make it cover the entire planet. Co-create with me. Join me in my work. Put your hand to the plow, Adam. You can think of a priest king um, kind of this way, like a, like a pastor politician, maybe. And again, I know that sounds like a weird, weird phrase to us, but it just means there's spiritual and there's cultural work for all of us to be engaged in in life. Now, I'm guessing that some of you vote, and all of us have people who are in offices of, of power above us. And those people who are elected into offices, they hold authority and responsibility, and they're given a work to do for the good, for the flourishing of society. This is not unlike Adam. And you would not be very pleased if the person who's in office, you find out that they're sitting idly by the pool in a lounge chair, sipping on an iced tea, having a great day, wiping sweat from their brow, not because they're hard at work, but because it's 90 degrees and they're in Florida. You would not be pleased by that, right? And likewise, God is not very pleased either. He's given Adam something to do. He hasn't made Adam a park ranger. He's made him a gardener. He's not just supposed to sit idly by and watch God create. He's supposed to get in there with God and create with him and cultivate and be part of God's story and part of God's work in the world. A priest king, that's what Adam is supposed to be. Now, if you're tracking with me up to this point, I would assume that you're also tracking with the experience of futility and frustration that that idealized version of what work and calling and life story is supposed to look like isn't reality for any of us. Adam and Eve experienced that just as the painter and just as you and I do. In Genesis 3, there's this story, the account of uh, Adam and Eve's sin. They succumb to the power of sin in their life. And the original sin, I think you could put it this way, that it's trying to pursue your vocation apart from God's vocation. What Adam and Eve essentially try to do is to live their own story. Like, they're going to be the author and the main character of their story. They're not willing to to be a side character in God's narrative. They're going to write their own story and live it the way that they want. You and I do this when we say to God implicitly, I don't want to give you my time, my money, my relationships, my responsibilities, my work as a part of your kingdom story. I'm going to live the way that I want with those things. I'm going to write my own story and live into it. That's essentially what Adam and Eve are doing. And because of that, they experience a curse. In your notes, I've said that our story diverts from God's story. And the work of writing our own story is futile. My work doesn't become vocation until it becomes a response to the voice of God. There's no calling without the call. There's no meaningful substantial labor in life that isn't first a response to the work that God is already doing. If we want our work and our stories to matter, we line up with the author. We line up with the original worker, the one who issues the call of God. Now here's something that this, this means for our lives. And this is in your notes as well, but um, my work doesn't stop and start at nine to five in a weekday. Like that may be a part of how I join with God in the world, but my vocation isn't limited to my day job. In in your notes, I said that my vocation includes, but it's not limited to my day job. My work between those hours is a part of what God wants to do in the world, but it's not the whole thing. God wants nine to five, but he also wants 7 p.m. He wants your bedtime routine. He wants 6 a.m., your wake-up routine. He wants your dinner table time. He wants your free time. God desires that all of life would be integrated together and submitted and surrendered to his work in the world. And because Adam and Eve missed that, they experience and they launch us into futility. But right at the point where Adam and Eve are missing it and their story is diverting into futility, God is at work writing a story that's been written before the ages. Paul writes about this. He says the mystery of the gospel is hidden before the ages and it's unfolding before us. God's been sowing the seeds of a story that was in existence long before Adam ever stepped foot in Eden. And so what God does is he calls a man named Abraham. And from Abraham, he raises up a whole nation of people, the people of Israel. He raises up more gardeners. He raises up stone cutters and leather workers and tent makers, artists and musicians, prophets, shepherds, kings, judges, He raises up these people, and he gives them the commissioning to be his image bearers, to live out the vocation that Adam was intended to live. But neither Adam nor Israel could fully live out the vocation, but God knows this. And all along, the story is moving towards a person who will unite fully and finally the human story with God's story, who will take the work of man and the work of God and embody both perfectly in harmony together. And Jesus does this. He actually reflects a little bit on his work. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, I want us to look and see what Jesus has to say about his own work. It's insightful for us of what Jesus thinks about vocation. So in John 17, it says that after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Notice, He's concerned with God's story. He continues, for you granted him authority over all people. Do you hear authority there? That he might give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. That sounds like responsibility. Verse three, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you see he's mediating the presence and the reign and the rule of God to humanity? And he says in verse four, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. That's vocation. Jesus, for 33 years, not just three, mind you, set, to his, set his whole life in the trajectory of God's will and God's work, right? Jesus was doing the will of God when he was a carpenter and when he was on the cross. He gave his whole self all the time to the work of God in the world, This is a beautiful narrative that God has written. I've said it this way in your notes, that God the Father is the one who calls, and in Christ, God himself became the recipient of the call. He's the one who's issuing it, he's the one who's responding to it. Adam couldn't do it, Israel couldn't do it, Jesus does it, he's the true and the better Adam, the true and the better Israel. He's the one who embodies vocation. He unites together these stories that were diverted in futile and he brings back the hope and the possibility that our story can be immersed in God's story and have meaning and substance and last. That the labor in vain that we experience from Genesis 3 onward doesn't have to be the end of the story. That we can labor in fruitfulness and in meaning and substance. But I'm mindful, especially today on Palm Sunday, that even in the midst of Jesus working this way in unison with God, uniting the stories together, that we're missing it, just like the people on Palm Sunday missed it. So as Jenny mentioned, right, Jesus, he rides the donkey into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and he knows what's coming ahead of him, and the people, this crowd around him, they welcome him into Jerusalem, ready to crown him as king, and they've been waiting for this moment, and so they throw down the palm branches, and they throw down their coats, and they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes, the name of the Lord. Like they're ready to make him king. Everything that they've wanted, the story they've been living, they think it's about to happen for them. And Jesus is living a different story than the one they realize. And they're in his story, not theirs, but they don't know that. And if you would have asked a bystander, I think, someone in the crowd that day, hey, tell me the story, what's unfolding here, help me understand. They might have told you something along the lines of, well, our nation, our Israel, our people, we've, we've been oppressed for generation after generation. We've Been in bondage. And so we need a, a new Exodus, of liberation. So Jesus, he's gonna be our king. We're gonna make him our king. And what he's gonna do, he's gonna cleanse the temple. And he's gonna cleanse our whole nation and rid us of these Romans. And there's gonna be an uprising. A revolution is about to begin where the power of Rome is gonna be overthrown and undone. So you better get ready, grab a sword, strap it to your side, hide it under your cloak, because at any moment now it could happen and we'll have to take up arms to fight for the revolution when Jesus becomes king. And Jesus would become king, not in the way they thought. Jesus was living a little bit of a different story and if we would've asked him, he might've narrated it a little bit differently. See, Jesus would cleanse the temple, but not of the Romans and the Gentiles. And Jesus would begin an uprising, a revolt, a revolution, but not against the power of Rome, against the power of sin and death. And Jesus wouldn't be calling his people to take up arms. He'd be calling them to beat those swords into plowshares. There's a new work to do. He's renewing the call of vocation in his own life. He embodies it and invites us into it. Come and live my story. Put your hands to the plow. That's what Jesus is doing in all of his life, responding to the Spirit and to the Father, walking in step with what God is doing in the world. And I'm mindful as I consider Palm Sunday that very often I am the crowd. I'm the one who misses what God's up to in the world. I fail to notice, I fail to pay attention, I fail to discern and see. I mean, this is why we sing the words of a song, open up our eyes to see you in the ordinary, in life. Help us notice where God is at work so we can join you. But I miss that, just like the crowd miss that. I get caught up in my own narrative. What I like to try and do is live my own story and then sorta of just like invoke a divine blessing on that instead of actually surrendering and trying to join what God's up to in the world. I started to notice this towards the end of high school and, and early in college a little bit more. I started to wake up some, some mentors, some people in my life were speaking into my life and making me aware of ways that I was missing what God was doing. And I still do this. We all still do this. But it became really pertinent for me. And there is this one moment in particular where I remember I just, it hit. And it just kind of clicked. I was driving home from somewhere and I parked my car in the campus lot behind the, uh, behind the library at our school. It was near my on campus house. And for whatever reason, like people in my generation sometimes do, I just pulled out my phone and I put it in park and I started scrolling through Facebook for, I don't know why. I don't even use Facebook that much, but I was doing just kind of the, the thumb flick scrolling through. But that day, I, I kept coming across the name Jacob Almond. And I kept seeing his picture. And it didn't take me long to realize that people were mourning him, that he had passed away. And um, I remember being struck by that. Now, you don't know Jacob Allman, but I went to high school with him. Jacob Allman was a fun guy. I mean, he was hilarious. I I had a bunch of classes, but I mostly remember PE. He was really good at football. People liked to be around him. Like, he was just a funny, kind, good guy. Um, And so I would have spent more time with him, but he also kind of liked to party, and I was trying to live a Christian life, um, and so I thought people like that were a stain that I couldn't have around. And I remember totally missing what God was up to in my life in high school. Totally oblivious to the reality that I was living a self-righteous, uncompassionate life, distancing myself from the very people that God had put in my life to engage with and be present to in love. I wasn't acting out of health and wisdom, distancing myself from sin. I was distancing myself from people because I thought I was better than and other than. I thought that I was living God's story and I was living my own story. I was missing what God was doing in the world. And so when Jacob died, I remember the culmination of just the past years of reflection and things that people had shared with me and waking up to some of that and I just sat there in my car and I just wept. I thought god what have I done? I wasted that time, I wasted those years. I could have been a person who was present to you, present to Jacob and I wasn't and I missed that. And I don't get that time back. And I think that I, know that I know that's an extreme example, but we do this in the day-to-day where we miss what God's up to because we get caught up in our own stories. For me, when I come home from the office and it's been a long, retiring day and my wife, Mara, wants to have an important conversation with me, I know that what feels like an interruption to my relaxation is actually an invitation to vocation. I don't always see it that way or get it right, but that's what it is. And when I encounter people who have questions, who hurt, who long for kindness, I encounter vocation. You do too. There's work to do there. When I suffer and experience loss, I remember that discomfort is often just the mask of vocation. All these things are opportunities, moments for us to engage with what God's doing in the world. Again, Stephen Garber, I think what he says is helpful here. He said that all day... Every day, there are both wounds and wonders at the very heart of life, if we have eyes to see. And seeing, learning to know, to pay attention, is where vocations begin. This is precisely the redemption that Jesus offers us. He comes not only to forgive sins, to remove the guilt from that, but to give us something as well, to give us vocation to give us renewed story, to invite us into what he's doing, to participate in his mission and his work with him, so that all that we do in life and all that we give ourselves to, all that we spend ourselves on, can matter and last into eternity beyond ourselves, that we can truly be a part of something bigger, that our labor is not in vain. And when we participate in that story, We find to be true, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Our work is redeemed, and our story is realigned with God's so that our labor is not in vain after all. There's calling all around us. Put your hands to the plow. In Tolkien's story, the painter, it doesn't end in death for him. He does, in fact, wake up in the next life, ready to begin a new journey, and he awakes and finds himself on a train. And he wakes up on this train, and he's looking out the window, and he's not sure where he's at yet or where he's going. But it doesn't take him too long to figure out. Before long, the train starts to slow, and it pulls to a halt. And it stops there, and as he's looking out the window, all of a sudden, it hits him, and he sees it. And so he gets off the train, and he runs as fast as he can out the door and across this vast grassland. And he sees it and he runs right towards it. And He sits under the sprawling branches of this enormous tree with intricate and beautiful leaves, a thousand if there was one. And you can see all the veins and the exact shade of green, the beautiful contour, the lines. And off into the distance, he sees a tree line of evergreens springing up from the grassland and beyond that even a line of mountains, snow on all the peaks, and a beautiful skyline lighting up the whole scene around him. And he sits there under that tree, and he cries again, and all he can utter is, it's finished. It's finished. The thing that he had given himself to, devoted his life's work to, considered his own calling, that masterpiece had become more real than he could have ever imagined. And it would last longer than he could have ever imagined. And it was more beautiful and good than he could have ever imagined. And he basked in the sunlight and he rested on that. And this is our story as well. All that's done in love lasts. Everything we do for Christ, in Christ, withstands death. That because sin and death have been defeated, we've been given back our vocation, a renewed call, and our labor is not in vain. All that we envision and devote ourselves to in Christ remains, because Christ remains. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, it poetically encapsulates this very idea that our labor is not in vain, that our work, our vocation continues on, the revelator writes it this way, 5 verse 9, and they, the creatures and the elders, they sang a new song saying, you, Jesus, the Lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Do you hear the echoes of Eden in the So friends, because our labor is not in vain, because our stories have meaning in light of God's story, because our work matters when it's surrendered to God's work in the world, put your hand to the plow. If you come to church on a Sunday, but you've never discipled someone, here's an invitation. Put your hand to the plow. If you've given your money to missions overseas, that's awesome. But have you invited a neighbor to your dinner table for a meal? Here's an invitation. Put your hand to the plow. Have you entrusted us, the church, to raise up your kids and to disciple them? That's awesome. Come alongside. Raise up followers of Jesus in your home. Put your hand to the plow. So I want to leave you with just two questions. And we're going to have a couple of minutes just to reflect on these together before we conclude in singing. The first question is this. Where in my life do I abdicate my responsibility as an image bearer turning toward passivity? So when you take stock of your life and the story that you're living and the work that you're giving yourself to what do you notice what surfaces for you what do you see are there any areas where for fear or apathy or comfort you shrink back from the story of god and you get caught up in your own narrative maybe you just fail to notice would you reflect on that And the second question, where is God calling me to put my hand to the plow? Where is there work to be done? Not something we're inventing for ourselves, but something, some work that God's already doing before we ever even got there that He wants us to step into with Him. Do you notice that at all? Is it with your neighbor? Is it with your kids? Is it with a friend? Is it with a co-worker? Is it around your dinner table? What is it in your morning routine? Where's God at work in a way that you can step into that with him? So as we uh, reflect for a few minutes, I just ask that you consider these things and take a posture of humility and mindfulness and prayer and stillness to consider what God would be speaking to you in the story of your life. And where is the vocation that he extends to you and invites you to step into? We'll take a few minutes before we sing. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.